0: Thank you, Bailey. Before I start the clock going, because somebody says they're going to give me the cutoff switch after five minutes, before I start the, the clock, I want to pay my extraordinary respects to Rebbe Umori, Rabbi Dr. Tendler, who was my Rebbe, in Reitz, who was my biology teacher at Yeshiva College. A shout out to all the people in the Rabbi Tendler fan club, uh, his daughter Mrs. Fried, his the royal son-in-law, Mona Schwartz, all the people that came to pay respects, you add my respects to that group. So the question that I've gotten while well, walking around here before we started had nothing to do with ecogenesis, but it had to do with, so what's the story with Einstein? So I'm going to just tell you this publicly. Somebody should report back to Rabbi Dr. Berman that I actually said this, Einstein's okay, it will always be Jewish, it will always have kosher food, it will always have an academic calendar that is Shomer Shabbat and Yom Yomteth. Yes we want Stern College students, yes we want Yeshiva College students. None of that's gonna change October Seder. Okay, got it? And, and somebody should really relate this to Rabbi Berman, and then an Einstein official has actually said that publicly. This is the first time it's been said publicly. Okay, so let's go. So this, these two presentations are forward thinking, as has been suggested by Rabbi Tendler. You have to think of a problem now, because it may take you several years to work it through. So I'm going to introduce a topic that the name of which you probably have not heard of until today, something called ectogenesis. And the concept is that we're going to soon have the ability to have real babies coming from artificial wombs. So, ectogenesis. It's a tough word. It sounds science fiction. And in fact, it still sounds like science fiction to me. So here's the definition. It's the growth of an organism... But here we're talking about an animal or a person in an artificial environment. So the Medical Ethics Society programs of years ago talked about the halakhic permissibility of surrogacy, of having an embryo develop in a surrogate wound. We are way past that now. Now we're talking about artificial wounds. And is that just a pipe dream? Is that science fiction? I hope to show you within the next couple of minutes, that it's not. So why is this important? So everybody's heard of the term NICU, yes? Neonatal intensive care unit. Before NICUs were around, if there was a premature birth, it was likely that child would die. But now NICUs are really, really important and are saving uh, lives. But still, about half the people that are born and have cerebral palsy, it's because they've been born prematurely and even having been in a NICU, They have that problem. The statistics are terrible. Before 37 weeks, 40 weeks, of course, is the normal gestation. Before 37 weeks, the major reason why people, why embryos die, they'll become full functioning human beings, relates to premature birth. Survival rate is terrible. And below 20 weeks, between 22 weeks, it's 0.7% survival rate. So the magic number these days is 24 weeks. If it's 24 weeks or later, a child can be born, go to a NICU, and survive. But there's been not enough information about what the quality of life of that survivorship is. So many of these children are born, they survive, they go to NICUs, 24, 25 weeks gestation, but they wind up with terrible brain problems, cardiac problems, breathing problems. So there's still a way to go to dealing with the premature birth. And that's what we're going to talk about in terms of ectogenesis. So the NICU save lives. It's true. And anybody who's thinking of going into it or is into it, it's an extraordinary, almost science fiction type of uh, situation. But the fact is that many of these saved lives have to deal with tremendous burdens as they get older. So... About a year ago, in 2017, an extraordinary paper was published in Nature. And just in terms of um, what Nature is, I will say that the two top scientific journals in the world are Nature, which is published in the UK, and Science, which is published in the United States. So top flight journal, they are not uh, cavalier about what they publish. So an extraordinary paper is written by uh, Alan Flake and his group at the University of Pennsylvania, an extra uterine device, artificial wool, to physiologically support the extreme premature lamb. Today the lamb, tomorrow the person. So I want to share with you that work in the next slide. It's gonna be a video, hopefully it'll work. I'm sure that it will. So please uh, cast your attention what I hope will be a video, that is double clicked, and it's not working, that's the sound, that's the sound of the video, so let's see if we can get a picture and expand it, and here we go, let's see if we can get that going, please pay attention. Is that amazing? Or is that amazing? Don't clap for the people that have done this. I would have to say this is probably the most... YouTube videos, yes, they're cute with the cats. This is the most amazing YouTube video I've ever seen in my whole life and I was looking for it right after reading the paper last year. So how did they do it? So you saw the video, you saw the lambs. Those lambs with a little bit of hair and fur were those lambs that actually survived getting out of the bag and we deliver whole. This is really happening today. And the difference between a lamb and a human, well, for now, we eat lamb chops and we don't eat humans, but besides that, it's almost the same. So, how did they do it? They used a semi-transparent plastic bag. It should be looked to you like the glad bags that are resealable. Uh, I think you all had that in your house. That's what they used as the artificial womb. They had openings for transfer materials. They had that pseudo-amniotic fluid in it they were able to provide oxygen to the developing lambs through putting a catheter through their umbilical cord and their umbilical artery and vein. They were able to get oxygen in, waste products out, pseudo dextrose is a sugar and amino acids to provide the amniotic fluid. And they were able to figure out what the ideal blood oxygen level should be for these developing lambs, what their blood sugar should be, their proteins, et cetera. They made together an extraordinary cocktail, and it worked. If you read the, the paper in the original, it's not that it worked the first time, there were several hundred adjustments that they had to make, but they got it right, and this mature lamb that has neurologically intact, GI tract, liver, brain, everything came out of that bio bag working just great. Is this gonna happen with humans? Yes, it will. There's gonna be a whole ethical issue, which we're gonna hear about, But once the ethics are potentially worked out, scientifically, this is going to happen. They've cloned human beings. In Korea, they've cloned a human being from a genetics that came from a cheek cell, as previously talked about. This is going to happen. So let's just talk about, for a moment, how they did it. Take a look at one one is that they're able to pour into the umbilical cord the right amount of oxygen, not too much, not too little. They learned that too much is not a good idea because in NICU's, they found after five, 10 years of NICU's existence, if you give too much oxygen to the preterm baby, they develop blindness. So they did all the right things of not too much, not too little. They're able to get all the waste products out from the amniotic fluid and putting in new sources of sugar and proteins, and that worked. So okay, here we have the technology, and let's just think of a couple of social and ethical considerations. I, I chose a couple that might not be at first glance what people in this audience are thinking. I think in this audience is the halachic issue, who is the father, who is the mother, abortion, all of these things are we'll hear about in a couple minutes. But this is a word from a feminist that I found uh, writing this. feminists was projecting that this is a great thing because it would free women from the tyranny of their reproductive biology. No longer will women woman have to carry a child in utero for nine months that can continue working, They can do all the things they want to do, put it in a, in a baby bank, and this could, develop. interesting. Men, same-sex couples, could have children entirely without a woman. And Rapp, Rapp talked about Who is the mother? Here, you can have a situation who is the mother, who is the father. Is there a mother? Is there a father? All of these are ethical considerations. There's the issue of scientists playing God. This is really big stuff. Do we have the right, the moral or ethical right, to actually bring babies into the world grown in a glad plastic bag? Something we'll have to think about. And then there's an issue of is there a maternal bond that forms with carrying your own child? and that goes into the outsourcing pregnancy to a machine rather than either yourself or a human surrogate, is that going to make a difference in the quality of babies? I hope we all have the longevity, the strength, and the healthiness to hear the outcome of these questions in a few years ahead.
1: So, first, so I'll take a deep breath. This is exciting, spooky, maybe a little scary. It'll all be okay because we're here today to start, just start a conversation that needs to go on in a pretty big hurry, because as Dr. Berman said, the technology will march forward much faster than our ethical appreciation of our obligations. And second, let's just once again say, wow, I mean, this is incredible. As we will discuss in a few minutes, uh, there are enormous positive potentials. For example, for couples who can't otherwise bear a biological child, there are enormous benefits in using this, what we should be careful to refer to as the artificial external uterus, because at a conference like this in the not-too-distant future, uh, we'll be talking about the artificial implanted uterus. Right? Oh. This might be better. So today we're talking about the artificial external uterus, and let's think about that in terms of two applications. One as a bridge technology, sort of like the LVAD, the left ventricular assist device, can be a bridge to transplant, or as a destination device, meaning the sole means of creating a newborn let's take a step back and discuss some terms. So I've been practicing law uh, for 30 something years. I spent the first half of my career, before I was called to bioethics by Nancy Doodler, defending doctors and hospitals in malpractice litigation. And I thought that's all I would ever do. And I enjoy it a lot. I miss it a lot but I would have to prepare doctors to testify at depositions and at trial, and I would go through a series of rules, a standard prep, and I'd, I'd interrupt myself, and I'd say, Doctor, what month were you born? So the doctor might say, February. And I would say to them, how do you know? To make the point that there's a difference between what we know as a fact, And what we've been told, even if we've been told from a reliable source. And then I would ask him my next question. And I would preface it, I would say to the doctor, now, I tricked you on the first question. That wasn't nice, but I made my point. Let me ask you another question. Were you born? So now they're nervous, right? Because I'm a lawyer, they are doctors. And they would hem and haw. And I would say to them, Don't lose your common sense just because you're going to be testifying under oath. If you're sitting here talking to me, you were born, right? How else could you be sitting here talking to me? I have to change that whole prep now, right? Because in, relatively speaking, a short period of time, we're going to have to decide what does born mean? Who was born and came out of a Ziploc bag. So let's get started. Ectogenesis is going to change a lot. What's going to change for the parents? In ethical discussion, in order to keep things in clear categories, we refer to parents as Progenitors. So that you have a little flexibility and you can take a step back from the colloquial or the social or the religious notion of a parent. Well, so one thing that changes is that women are liberated from exclusive responsibility for child rearing. It will have an enormous equalizing effect between male and female progenitors... Because one will not be burdened to take time away from career or other pursuits in order to bear a child. That will be profound. Flip side, women will lose exclusive control of child rearing, right? And that's a pretty important stabilizing mechanism that we have relied upon in many different contexts. We're going to talk about that some more when we talk about termination of pregnancy involving an artificial external uterus. Men gain equal standing in procreation decisions. Right? Our whole construct around the ethics of procreation and termination of pregnancy are tied now to the notion that the life of the fetus and the life of the female progenitor are inextricably linked by the simple fact that the fetus is in the female's body. That changes. So men lose relief from the responsibility for the termination decision, right? The flip side is that now men will have as much responsibility and perhaps prerogative as the female progenitor to decide when a pregnancy should be terminated and for what reasons. The timing of childbirth shifts, this is perhaps the most profound change, with less urgency for reproduction, which means that the timeline gets extended. Now, that would be trivial if the timeline for human existence got extended in proportion, but of course we're not there yet, and I would argue that's probably a good thing. So if you can push the time of childbearing later in the progenitor's life, gives that person less time to do their parenting. So that's a profound impact. Therefore, the age gap between parents and offspring can expand putting more pressure on the next generation because the whole process is getting pushed later, right? So we need to be concerned about not just what happens with the first generation of reproduction that can be deferred because of the availability of the artificial external uterus. We need to be concerned about what's going to happen with the children's children. Reduced... Constrainment on family size. There are many social, including religious, prerogatives and imperatives to have large families or to have small families, generally constrained by the reproductive capacity of the woman. And when the process of reproducing starts, that goes out the window. So now you can, in theory, produce babies indefinitely. Imagine an 80-year-old couple could have a newborn baby. So let's think about the child. What changes for the child? Birthdays. When's your birthday when you came out of a Ziploc bag, right? Now you could easily say, no problem, it's the same as a biologic uterus, when you open up the bag, that's your birthday. But now, your birthday is determined by biological imperatives, the onset of labor, the progression of labor, whether it is a safe labor or a labor that necessitates a C-section. Now, when you're born, can be manipulated. So it could be people like having their children in May. My wife decided that she wanted to have her summer off when she was pregnant with our son. So Ben was born on May 4th. When it came time for our second child, she said, you know, I'd really like to have all of August off. Talk about pressure. Um, Emily was born on May 24th, so Joan got all of August Um, not a problem anymore. You get to pick when your child is born, leads to all sorts of opportunities for gaming the system, either to benefit the child by an advantageous birthday, or to benefit the parents at the child's expense. Premature birth becomes much less of an issue which means that we will have much healthier children overall. Good thing? Absolutely. Except if you're one of the children who still winds up a premature birth for a variety of technical reasons, and you now become a smaller cohort with less support because that becomes more of an outlier event. Prenatal surgery options. Just the fact that we do prenatal surgery is astounding and marvelous, that you can go into a woman's uterus, safely pierce the amniotic sac, perform surgery, and then let the fetus move toward maturity, that's amazing. The artificial external uterus creates literally unlimited opportunities to engage in surgical and other sorts of intervention because you don't have to worry about the potential consequences for the female progenitor, the mommy. Shared decision-making responsibility for the prenatal surgery. As with the question of timing of procreation and timing of termination of pregnancy, the woman no longer has, in effect, the veto over whether there will be prenatal surgery, another dramatically equalizing influence on the relationship between the male progenitor and the female progenitor. Reduced constraints on family size are directly tied to the opportunity to do prenatal surgery because it means you can avoid more of the complications that would reduce family size. So what changes for all of us outside of the dyad of the male and female progenitor? Parenthood rights versus personhood rights get completely turned on their head, right? Most ethical dilemmas in reproduction come down to the range of discretion that a parent can exercise with regard to their Preborn or born child, and how that authority relates to the personhood rights of the preborn and postborn child. And our sort of paradigm example of this in clinical bioethics is the problem of blood transfusion for Jehovah's Witness children. Right? We have recognized as a value in our society derived from that seemingly overwhelming ethical principle of autonomy, although that pendulum is shifting as well, that individuals on the basis of faith can refuse medical treatment, including Jehovah's Witness observance refusing blood transfusion, even if that will bring about their death. Likewise, we have made a very clear, hard and fast decision as a society that a parent will not be allowed to refuse a blood transfusion on behalf of their child in furtherance of the parent's religious objectives. Why? Because that deprives the child of the opportunity to reach maturity, to reach the age of 18 in the U.S. and assume the opportunity... make religious decisions for themselves. So this balance between parenthood rights and personhood rights changes profoundly when the parenthood right is no longer tied to the female progenitor having effective custody, internal biologic custody, of the child. constraints on fetal advocacy are turned on their heads, right? So when we started the debate over the extraction of stem cells from the unused frozen embryos, we were looking at a really interesting opportunity for couples to have children who couldn't do so in the traditional biologic manner, with the result that there was this surplus of frozen embryos from which you could extract stem cells for all sorts of research, which is just now starting to look like it will turn into therapy. And people objected to that notion of extracting stem cells because it ended the life of the embryo. It would never become a fetus. And the moral rationale for justifying the authority of the parent, the parenthood right to make a decision to use the otherwise not needed frozen embryos to drive stem cells was that those embryos were never going to become a person. Because the right to decide whether your biologic material ever turned into a human was tied to its access to a uterus, and not just any uterus, but the uterus of the person who was the female progenitor, the female supplier of the biologic material, that would potentially get implanted in that woman's uterus. And there was actually a movement among people who were opposed to the destruction of surplus frozen embryos, a notion of embryo adoption, that someone could come along and say, well, if you don't want to bring that embryo to life, I will, and I will implant it in my uterus. didn't go anywhere. There weren't all that many people interested in having a stranger's embryo implanted in their uterus. With the advent of the artificial external uterus, we don't have that implantation problem. All of those surplus embryos, if you credit personhood rights over parenthood rights, all of those surplus embryos become viable potential humans, human persons independent of the progenitor, in this case the female progenitor's, willingness to have that embryo implanted in her uterus. This is the biggest impact on society. Access to this technology will redefine economic opportunity between classes, because there will be those who have access to the technology because they can afford it, and they will be freed or liberated from the time constraints of being pregnant, giving them greater economic opportunity and therefore more opportunity for advancement than those who don't have the economic means to avail themselves of the artificial external uterus. So that'll be an issue that we will have to confront. Not so different, by the way, from the debate that we engage in over organ transplantation as an economic and technological innovation. So what are our ethical challenges? This is just a starting point for the discussion because as much as we in bioethics have started to think about what the challenges are, it's hard to know what you don't know to think about. But here are just a few. What criteria should we be applying to termination decisions when the male and the female progenitor have equal standing in that decision? How should we resolve disputes that will inevitably emerge when neither the male nor the female progenitor has a superior claim to decision-making authority? Should women have the right to a uterine pregnancy? Wow. What if the artificial external uterus is unequivocally the safer, better way of having a baby, reducing the risk of the complications that Dr. Berman referred to by, say, 90%. Would the decision to go forward with a natural uterine pregnancy be a form of child neglect or abuse? There's a hard one. My slide jumped. What if ectogenesis is found to be safer than pregnancy across the board? Should we ban biologic uterine pregnancies as a society? I don't like that idea, but I'm not a woman. Can the state intervene to require transfer of an at-risk pregnancy? So in terms of the bridge application of the artificial external uterus, can the state say to a woman, you're... Pregnancy is in jeopardy, and there are so many different circumstances where that comes up, usually at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, Can the state acting on behalf of the not yet viable, right, we've used viability as a criteria up until now, not yet viable embryo fetus, can the state require that that um, embryo, that fetus, be transferred to an artificial external uterus? Can clinicians refuse to participate in the use of an artificial external uterus on conscience grounds? You would think at first blush, yes, right? No clinician, no doctor or nurse or therapist has any obligation to treat any given patient. But if you are refusing to make available to your patient... A technology that provides a substantial improvement in morbidity and mortality, is that a form of malpractice? So where do we look for guidance on this? Immanuel Kant, who gave us the notion of the categorical imperative embodied in the Ten Commandments, or John Stuart Mill, who gave us the notion of balancing benefits and burdens. That's always appealing. Really useful if you have to decide what should the speed limit be, right? Aldius Huxley, who gave us the notion of the brave new world. More on that in a moment. Or perhaps our own Rabbi Edward Reichman at Einstein, who is a physician who's actually started writing about these ethical questions from a halachic perspective. And he has a paper coming out, and we'll make sure that it gets to all of you when it's available. If you haven't read Brave New World, now would be a good time. If you read it 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago, now would be a good time to pick it up again. Because we are confronting questions that we are wholly unprepared for. And as Dr. Berman said, the technology, look at my time, the technology will move forward from now A whole lot quicker than our ability to make sense out of what the ethical and theological answers are. So, this is your warning. Now is the time to start. It's a lot like climate change. You can ignore it at your peril. Thank you, and we'll take some questions.
0: Before the questions, I want to show three more slides. I was waiting until my colleague talked about the ethics, but I saw some skeptics, if you can go back to my presentation, I saw some skeptics in the audience about, yeah, yeah, it's lambs, but is this really going to happen? I just want to show you three quick pictures of which I would say about ten people in the room have seen before. I won't comment on them. I just want you to see them. An 11 week old human child, an 18 week old human child, a 20 week old human child. This is not science fiction, those are humans. Thank you Dr. Burns for the metaphorical mic drop. Um, Um, and Mr. Hoffman. So we're going to take a couple questions. Um, if I could get this to come off. Who would like to ask a question? All right, awesome. So would the development of these artificial moves also affect the decision making when it comes to abortion in a um, I guess if a woman wants an abortion but her husband doesn't, would does this affect if the husband would be allowed to move the um, embryo or fetus to artificial womb?
1: That is one of the essential. I'll just speak up. Uh, that's one of the essential questions that we are going to confront because no longer is yeah, no longer is the um, woman in. Physical custody, exclusive physical custody of the uh, fetus. That's let's just take one of them um, down. and might, we would have to work out whether the loss of exclusive physical custody of the fetus ought normatively to change the distribution of decision-making authority between the male and the female progenitor. So, yeah, that's one of our challenges.
0: about epigenetics. Just wondering, how is there a hormonal component in this in this artificial birth, and if so, how is to that point, uh,
1: another book that we should all be dusting off is The Island of Dr. Moreau um, because we will have to deal with the status of the products of the early use of the artificial external uterus in humans when they don't come out in a manner that strictly meets our definition of a functioning human. So we're going to have to literally is for being treated as someone entitled to to full-person currency? One question. situations where, it's one of those classic situations where the order magnitude itself creates a different influence because with so many people able to engage in this form of assisted reproduction um, the impact on society of labor procreation, larger families Distribution of decision-making authority between males and females is going to become a bigger issue. Much, by the way, in the same way that we've seen.
0: We're to the same
1: over here, whether it would be whether a lot of day, I should have to point to you, sort of view for healthy women that they should in fact bear the child in what I we'll call the classic biological fashion
0: rather than relying on an artificial external universe.